According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures, as always. Join me once again in the book of Isaiah. For today, it is Isaiah chapter 6. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. Lord Sabaoth is in verse 5 of Isaiah chapter 6. And we will be taking a look at the king, the Lord of hosts, the king, the Lord Sabaoth, his name. Before we get started, let's ask God the Father to humble ourselves under the authority of the word of God, that we might receive the word implanted that is able to save our soul. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together this morning. Father, for the grace provision that this is. We identify that none of us deserves this. We haven't earned or deserved any of your grace, Father. By your grace, we are what we are and we do what we do. But in your grace, Father, you have preserved a lampstand and you have provided for your word to go forth on this day. And we know that your word will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. We ask that we might be humble to receive the word implanted, and we ask, Father, that we would have uh, the ears to hear. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. And seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, the Melech, the king, Yahweh, Sivayoth. The Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which, with which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. All right, here's our first seven verses. We've got 13 verses to cover today. I'll go ahead and stop there so we don't lose track of what we're dealing with. Um, you can break the chapter down into halves pretty easily. And uh, I'm going to break it down into thirds, actually. We're going to handle verses 1 through 5. Uh, then we'll uh, make some comment on those. And then verses 6 and 7, I think, that have a very uh, clear gospel application that we can glean from. And hopefully, in a very real way, you'll, you'll walk out of the, here today with this in your pocket thinking, I'm going to use that next time I give the gospel. All right? Um, I'm not recommending you touch people's lips with burning coals. But we are going to remember this episode and say... There is a less painful way to receive forgiveness of sins. All right. So we'll uh, illustrate those. And then we get to the commission. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah raises his hand and says, here I am, send me. And the impact of this, this prophetic calling for the prophet Isaiah and the uh, some folks think this is actually the beginning of his ministry. This is a flashback scene that uh, highlights how it was he was called to be a prophet and uh, so forth. Well, let's get a handle on it. This is, uh, we're dealing with holy, holy, holy. 
We're dealing with the heavenly worship of what's taking place, and Isaiah gets to observe these things. Holy, 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 Adonai, my Lord, Yahweh Sabaoth, is seated on a throne. This is the setting for the chapter. Yahweh Sabaoth is seated on a throne with his robe intruding into the temple. He's on the throne. The throne's not in the temple. He's on a throne. doesn't say where the throne is located. Lofty and exalted, but the train of his robe filling the temple. And this is an imagery that I find quite startling because of the, the context for which this message is first given. In the year of King Uzziah's death. In the year of King Uzziah's death. Remember who King Uzziah was. And even in the beginning of the book of Isaiah, remember how the book began? The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The prophet Isaiah had a prophetic career that spanned four kings of Israel. All right? And, uh, you know, I think I even made the point, you know, administrations come and go, but the word of God abides forever. And, uh, you know, we politically, we are in a season right now, there's going to be an election and whatever. All right, administrations come and go, but the word of God abides forever. Now, as far as Uzziah is concerned, he was the first king that uh, was in office or on throne when um, Isaiah started his, his prophetic ministry. And because of that, a lot of scholars take a look here at chapter 6 and they note, hmm, in the year of King Uzziah's death. So what does this mean? Does this mean that this, that this is his call, that this is the first message he ever delivered? And if so, what have we been reading in those first five chapters? All right, What's, what's happening here in the, in the structure of this book? And there's you know, reasonable debate about that, and there's reason to, to view and consider different possibilities. Simply because he had a verbal spoken ministry for that length of time doesn't mean that's how long it took him to write this all down. <laughs> Chances are he probably, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, composed all 66 chapters in pretty short order towards the end of his life. Maybe even, I think he lived beyond the life of Hezekiah. I think during the evil reign of Manasseh, uh, Isaiah retired from public life and composed the book, composed the text of what we have. In any event, the year of King Uzziah's death, and then there's different ways to pinpoint this and different aspects of it, but it's not important really. What's significant though is that we have an example of King Uzziah intruding into the temple. And in that very year, we have a vision of Adonai Yahweh Sabaoth, my Lord, that's Adonai, my Lord, Yahweh of hosts, the Lord God of hosts. This is his battlefield name. This is the name. Savayoth speaks of the armies, the Savah, the forces. And he is Yahweh Savayoth. And when he comes to reign, he will come to reign having conquered at Armageddon, having conquered at Second Advent. He makes no claim to this name in First Advent when Jesus comes humbly, born of a virgin, and, 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 and speaking uh, uh, to, uh, truth and bringing salvation. It's a second advent application for Adonai Yahweh Tzabayoth. Now, as far as King Uzziah is concerned, uh, we get the details on this back in 2 Chronicles 26, and I'm not going to read the entire chapter for you, but I'll just highlight a couple of aspects of it and then leave it to you to read on your own. Because uh, all too often, nobody reads Chronicles. 
And they get to Chronicles and they say, well, we read this already in Samuel and Kings. Why, why would I have to read this again? All right, well, because the Holy Spirit inspired it and you're accountable for it. And because the emphasis in Chronicles is the priestly emphasis that's missing or not as stressed emphatically in Samuel and Kings. And so I think to, uh, to get it out of, I could have listed a second Kings reference here, but I like the second Chronicles reference. So let's take a look at these. King Uzziah. And it keeps it simple, too, because if I had, had I given you the king's reference, you would have been reading about Uzziah by his other name. He's also known as King Ahaz, uh, Azariah, all right? So I try to avoid confusion and leave it as King Uzziah here. Now, he intrudes into the office, and he's basically a good king until he messes up. So he's uh, 16 years old in verse 3 when he becomes king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. How many kings reigned 52 years? That's a long reign. And uh, his mother's name was uh, Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understood through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. That's the key. As long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. But he's going to have a day where he's going to mess up. And this is the problem. I think we get complacent in our Christian walk. And we think that we've done so much for God that now we're entitled to a little bit of uh, whatever, a little bit of carnality. Not so. And uh, anyway, I'm going to skip through most of this. He uh, had a lot of success in the battlefield and he, he had victory and he received tribute and a lot of things here. Everything was going well. Until, verse 16, when he became strong, uh his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. And I find that this is very much reminiscent of David who had success on every hand and then he becomes prideful and then he stops serving the Lord. He starts getting into his Bathsheba trouble and different aspects there. And he was unfaithful. So he acted corruptly. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God. And he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, what in the world gave him the idea that that was a smart thing to do? (laughs) All right? He's a king. He's the son of David. He's of the tribe of Judah. Temple business, that's Levi. That's not Judah. He is not a priest. He is not in the right tribe. He is not of the right lineage. He is not qualified. He has no business standing before that altar. And this is going to be uh, huge for us. In Isaiah chapter 6, we need to understand altars. And what altars are we entitled to? And what altars we're not entitled to? Because there's an altar with a stone that the angel can't touch. He has to use the tongs because he's not entitled. uh, The way we are, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. In any event, um, he messes up. And so, (laughs) Azariah the priest entered after him with 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. And notice, they opposed Uzziah the king. All right, they're not going to rubber stamp, well, he's the king, let's let him do what he wants. All right? Or, well, you know, you've been a good king up till now, we'll let you slide. I'm sure God is okay with what you're doing. No, we have Azariah and 80 priests, and they're going to stand opposed to their king. When the king is wrong, then prophets and priests need to step up, as Nathan did in David's lifetime and as Azariah is doing here in Uzziah's lifetime. And, uh, but see, he intruded into the temple. 
and it's not for any king until the son of David comes to sit on the throne, will then there be intrusion into the temple. But that'll be, I'm getting ahead of myself, that'll be Jesus Christ himself as king and priest. So, they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. That's what they do. They're set apart to do that. It's their function and their design. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. And you talk about a crash and burn. You've done so well up till now. But look what happens. Now Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. This is where he departed from the pattern of David. David, at least, had the humility when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet. When he was found out, David just threw himself on the mercy of the Lord and said, I've sinned. I've sinned. And that's what saved his life. Nathan said, uh, then you're forgiven and the Lord has saved your life. He could have died right, David could have died right then and there. Now here's Uzziah, not repentant, angry. And he was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priest, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. And he's going to live out his days as a leper. He lives out his days here as a leper. Verse 21, King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. He becomes a co-regent. All right, We have the co-regency here between the father and son. And that happened with, you know, in some instances, in some regularity, there, was co- there were co-regencies in the uh, period of the kings here, which is kind of what makes the uh, chronology a bit of a, a puzzle. And now the rest of the act. So there it is. All right, King Uzziah had intruded into the temple. He had intruded into the temple. And uh, I find it remarkable that here is a vision that comes in the year of his death, and the vision is of a king on his throne and uh, intrusion into the temple. That is, the train of his robe fills the temple, we're told. And seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. Normally, temple activity is associated with cherubim. And I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on this, but I would encourage you. We did an exhaustive study on angelology just last year. And those classes are on the website. There's audio on the website. There's even video on the website. We've got an opportunity to to, uh, go through the angelology material and remind yourself, what's the difference between a cherubim and a seraphim? What's a cherub and what's a seraph? Okay, the eames are just plurals. But what's the difference between these angels? And why do they have six wings? And why do the others have four wings? Or sometimes they don't. And why, uh, how many faces do they have? And all these things. And, and if we allow ourselves to be lost in the faces and the wings, we might miss the point of what are they doing there? <laughs> what is their function? How do they guard the holiness of God in the case of the cherubim? And why it is that cherubim are uh, as a cherub with a flaming sword that keeps Adam and Eve from sneaking back into the Garden of Eden? Why it is the cherubim are in the temple, in the tabernacle in the temple? Normally, temple activity is associated with cherubim. And here's some homework for you. Exodus 25, you'll observe the instructions that were given for creating the uh, Ark of the Covenant and the cherubim that that overshadow the mercy seat, as well as the cherubim that are uh, placed upon, embroidered on the veil. All right, The veil between the holy place and the most holy place, it had cherubim embroidered on it. Why is that? Because cherubim are associated with guarding. Satan was the anointed cherub who guarded. All right, He was placed on the holy mountain of God in Ezekiel 28. 
We also have Second Chronicles 3, verses 7 through 14. Uh, in Exodus, it's the tabernacle, and in Second Chronicles, it's the temple. All right, but Solomon's temple is, is just a larger version, permanent version of the tabernacle, modified, you know, enlarged, but still following the blueprint, the pattern of the heavenly reality. Ezekiel 10, a whole chapter given over to cherubim that were visiting the prophet Ezekiel in captivity. They were carrying the, the, the chariot of, of Yahweh in Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10. And here we find they've got four faces. The face of a bull, the face of an eagle, the face of a lion, and the face of a man. Finally, in Ezekiel 41, we have the prophecy of the coming future temple in the, in the millennium. The millennial temple that's described in Isaiah 40 through 48. Specifically in chapter 41, we have all of the cherubim references because once again, the artwork, the decorations, the beauty of the millennial temple will feature cherubim in the application. No seraphs anywhere. No seraphs anywhere in any of these temple applications except for the vision of Isaiah chapter 6. And I don't believe that's an accident. I believe that's significant for a reason that Isaiah sees cherubim instead of, or seraphim instead of cherubim. And the reason being is because Isaiah is going to be the prophet of the Old Testament gospel. Isaiah is going to be the prophet who is going to be communicating the seraphim message. And I'll show you what that is here in just a moment. Oh, actually, my slide has already given it away. He read it 10 minutes ago. So normally, temple activity is associated with cherubim. In this vision, however, it's not cherubim. The featured angels are seraphim. And this is quite appropriate for a message that stresses the serpentine affliction of man. What do I mean by that? The serpentine affliction of man. Of all the places where seraph occurs in the Old Testament, besides the famous Isaiah heaven vision of Isaiah chapter 6, is the famous serpents in the wilderness experience of Numbers chapter 21. And we often lose sight of the fact that both passages in the Hebrew are talking about seraphim. They're talking about seraphim. But if we're in the wilderness, we call them snakes. If If we're in a prophetic vision of heaven, we call them angels or seraphim. Maybe we don't even translate them. We just call them seraphim. We don't want to call them snakes. All right. Join me in Numbers chapter 21. You can hold your finger there in Isaiah 6 or stick your uh, bulletin there, bubblegum wrapper, whatever you have for a bookmark. And uh, let's look back at Numbers 21. Saraph means to burn, and these burning ones, flaming serpents, I'm ready for another dragon movie. (laughs) Can't wait for Hobbit 3 to come out. See some more flaming serpents, right? Here's um, Numbers chapter 21, part of their wilderness wanderings. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. That's what it says in English. The Lord sent seraphim among the people. But because it's not a vision of Isaiah where he sees uh, Yahweh of Sibioth sitting on a throne, they don't, the translators don't render it seraphim here, they render it fiery serpents. But in Isaiah chapter 6, they don't know how to translate it, they don't want to translate it fiery serpents, we're singing holy, holy, holy. So they just leave it untranslated and say, the seraphim, we're singing holy, holy, holy. With six wings and with two they covered their eyes and two they covered their feet and so forth. 
The point is, though, let's try to understand what is a serpentine affliction? What is the lost estate of humanity because of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3? What is the fallen estate of man that's been bitten, that has only one and only one provision for life? And you understand that what we have here are pictures that you can use the next time you give the gospel to an unbeliever. Because that unbeliever you're talking to is in Adam. And being in Adam, they're snake bit. (laughs) Okay? They are fallen humans in Adam. They are lost. They are without Christ, without hope, without eternal life. And there is one and only provision. There's only one thing they can look to. That's the cross of Jesus Christ. Now this is played out in a drama, in a pantomime, in a prophetic illustration here in Numbers 21. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And here's the mechanism. Here's the provision. So the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, make your own seraph, craft it. It's going to make it out of bronze and set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. When he looks at it, he will live. We even have a hymn in our hymnal called Look and Live, right? My brother live. Because this is the only provision. You can look at anything else. You can trust in your own might. You can do whatever else you want to do. You can follow the multi-culty lies of moral relativism and say, well, there's many paths to blah, blah, blah. Or you can obey the scripture that says, follow the divine mandate. It's the only course of action that will save you. So, Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on the standard, and it came about, if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. When he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. And we have, it's a beautiful chapter. It's a beautiful story. It gets fulfilled, of course, in Christ. It's uh, mentioned in the Gospels as, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up. We have typology being played out here that has its fulfillment when Jesus Christ went to the cross. So are you following this? You can take this. You can teach this. Take it to the, take it to the playground. Teach your, your fellow classmates. Teach whoever. This, is, this, this stuff is easy. This, this makes sense. Now, these are the seraphim. All right? These are the seraphim. The Bible doesn't talk about seraphim as often as it does cherubim. But it does here. And it's the seraphim that are singing, holy, holy, holy. It's the seraphim that are identifying that God in his throne is a God of holiness. And if we think that we can just stroll on in there, being who we are, we need to think again. And Isaiah learns very quickly here. He says, ooh, I shouldn't be seeing this. <laughs> right? Immediately in, in seeing this and seeing what's going on, Isaiah says, I've got a problem. I've got unclean eyes. I've got unclean lips. And he's seeing what he shouldn't be seeing. And how can he, how can he tell the story? How can he talk about it? As unclean as he is. This is the God of holiness. This is Yahweh Sevaioth seated on the throne. All right. Now, I did everything I could to try to um, research and study and pray and, and um, impress everybody here today with my 
genius insight as to the deep theological um, gravity of the triplet, holy, holy, holy. Why is it repeated three times? And I have failed. But I have observed that it's actually fairly common. The prophets are fond of triplets. The prophets are fond of triplets, and these other ones, Jeremiah uses them, Ezekiel uses them, they seem to be attention-getters, and beyond that, why not sing holy, holy, holy? <laughs> you know? Um, in particular, and you musicians know this, sometimes you just repeat it to match the poetry, to match the meter, to match where the, where the, where the tune is going. And a single holy doesn't quite match up with what a triple holy can do, particularly if you're going to follow it with uh, Yahweh Sevaioth, the whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. And one thing you've got to say about Isaiah, Isaiah was a poet. All right? But let's look at a couple of these other ones. They're not as dramatic as holy, holy, holy. But uh, Jeremiah 22. Jeremiah 22:29 Oh land 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 hear the word of the Lord all right oh land 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 hear the word of the Lord and it just doesn't have the same ring to it that holy 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 does so we don't end up with a hymn in our hymnal of land 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 but we could right I'll see if Doug can write something up he's the songwriter here but it, it is for emphasis, it is an attention-getter, it does in the poetry, it does help to uh, balance what you're balancing in the, uh, the other lines of the, uh, of the passage. And then Ezekiel 21-27, contemporary of Jeremiah was Ezekiel. Jeremiah was, of course, selected to stay in Jerusalem while it falls. Ezekiel was dispatched to live in captivity as it falls. They were contemporary with each other. Uh, Jeremiah a bit older than Ezekiel, but still they overlapped. And uh, it's not holy, 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 or land, land, land. This is a ruin, ruin, ruin. A ruin, ruin, ruin. Again, not trendy for the hymnals, but there it is. It grabs your attention. A ruin, ruin, ruin. And yet the doctrine of this is significant because this is what Ezekiel, this is what Isaiah is terrified of. He says, "Woe is me! I am ruined." He sees this vision of the seraphim and Yahweh Sevaioth, and he sees this glory of holiness. And he says, woe to me, I am ruined. I am ruined. And there is an entire doctrine of ruin that I wish we had time to go through. There are depths of the language here that I'm just, um, I want to know more about it. Why is the verb for ruin the same as the verb for image if we're made in the image and likeness of God? And then if we're fallen now and we're ruined, why do we have the same dama? Why do we have the same Hebrew expressions? All right, so the prophets are fond of triplets. Beyond that, it, it does strike a note of emphasis. And beyond that, it makes it memorable for the lyrics of the song, of the poetry. And that's what we have here. And same thing in hymn number 70. It's holy, holy, holy. It, it goes well with the music. All right. The whole earth is full of his glory. Maybe the biggest emphasis we want to highlight here in these first five verses is this, or in the first three verses, is the recognition that the whole earth is full of his glory. 
Boy, those were the days. Remember those days? Should we sit around and talk about the good old days? We can reminisce about, boy, man, do you remember when the whole earth was full of His glory? Okay, well, tongue-in-cheek, of course, this has not yet happened. (laughs) We've never had the historical fulfillment of what is being being stated here. The whole earth is not yet full of His glory. It will be. The day is coming, and it is something to look forward to. It is something that we should be anticipating eagerly. The whole earth is full of His glory. This is prophesied often, but it is unfulfilled until the second advent of Jesus Christ. And in fact, it will be the prophet Isaiah that's going to make very clear to us how this is waiting for second advent in its fulfillment. It's like we were talking about with visualized world peace. All right, let's hammer the swords into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks. Let's just get along, right? Sheep and goats laying down together. Or no, lions and lambs lying down together. All right, I guess sheep and goats not so scary. Um, But everybody wants to visualize world peace minus Jesus Christ. Let's bring it about with our human effort. Let's do our thing. Let's, wait a minute. It's going to come about through his conquering peace through military victory. How about that? Prophesied often, Numbers 14, 21, Psalm 72, 19, Habakkuk 2, 14. But fulfilled, unfulfilled, until the second advent of Jesus, of Jesus Christ. Unfulfilled until the second advent of Jesus Christ. This is what we have to look forward to. I, it, it, it's, it's interesting to me how many, it shouldn't be interesting because it's satanic, but, but how many people have these utopian dreams? Marx and his utopian dream. Um, you know, Hitler and his utopian dream. This world will be a better place as long as we can fulfill what we're trying to do. A lot of uh, American politics with these utopian ideals. Read, read uh, Ameritopia. All right? Mark Levine, Ameritopia. And he'll spell out actually historically, it goes back to Plato. Plato's Republic. And it's been repeated again and again and again from communism to Nazism to every dream about bringing about world peace. Of course, on our terms. <laughs> Nazis want it on their terms. The communists want it on their terms. Republicans want it on their terms. Democrats want it on their terms. The scripture says it's going to be on God's terms when Jesus Christ returns and is seated on the throne of David. That's the point we have to understand. We will not have perfect government until that point of time. All right, Numbers 14, 21, Psalm 72, 19. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but you can at least see the promises for what they are. Numbers 14. And here uh, the spies are rebelling. They want to go back to Egypt. Because, you know, they had it so great in Egypt. Um, <laughs> you know, isn't that pathetic? See, here's, here are delusional people talking about the good old days. And they were not the good old days. But they think they were because they don't like what they're dealing with now. So Moses had to intercede for them. Say, Lord, don't wipe them out. They're your people. And so uh, the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word, but indeed as I live, 
as I live, the God who cannot lie is taking a vow. He's taking an oath. And the God who cannot lie and the God who cannot die takes a a vow based upon his life as I live. All the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Okay? You think that's going to go unfulfilled? Well, that's just hyperbole. That's just poetry. Wait a minute. This is his promise, and he was serious enough about it to make it as with a vow, staking his own immutable eternal life on it, the God who cannot lie. I find this to be significant. I believe the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. We just haven't seen it yet. It's prophesied but then the fulfillment of it is also prophesied. And we're not going to usher it in until he ushers it in. Our human effort's not going to get it done. Psalm 72:19. This is the conclusion of one of the Davidic books. Remember, uh, there's 150 Psalms, but they're organized into different books. This is the conclusion of book two, the five books of Psalms. Verse 18 says, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel who alone works wonders, and blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. It's a prayer of David. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Conclusion to Psalm 72 there. Habakkuk 2.14. Say Habakkuk? Who, Who pays attention to Habakkuk? We should. Habakkuk, because the righteous will live by faith. Remember that? All right, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Habakkuk, 2.14. 2, four is what talks about the righteous will live by faith, and we've got a context throughout. Verse 12, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. You know, until the Lord comes back, We've got violence. We've got bloodshed. We've got wars and rumors of wars. We've got horrible things going on. This world's not getting better. It's getting worse. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? For the whole, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Goes on to describe some other things there. All right. Prophesied often, but unfulfilled until the second advent of Jesus Christ. Twice now in Isaiah, we're going to have this coming up. How about five weeks from now when we're Isaiah chapter 11? Isaiah chapter 11. Do we want the glory of God to fill the earth? He's going to do it. And he's going to do it in his timing. All we can say is, hurry up, Lord. <laughs> Even so, come Lord Jesus. The final promise of, of the Scripture is, Behold, I come quickly. And what do we say? We say, Maranatha, oh, that it were today. Isaiah 11, verses uh, 9 and 10. See, here is where, here is where um, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard with the young goat, the lion, the cow, all this peace on earth stuff. The child will stick his hand in the hole of the cobra. They will not hurt or destroy at all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. And in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. So there is the universal glory throughout the earth. Chapter 40 and verse 5. What's Isaiah 40? It is the first chapter of the final 27 chapters 
of Isaiah, right? Remember, Isaiah is a miniature Bible. 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books of the New Testament, 39 chapters of, of uh, wrath and judgment and, 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 and hardship, but then 27 chapters where it's primarily glory and comfort, as Isaiah 40 begins here. So think of this as Matthew, the start of the New Testament, the start of the message of comfort. Comfort, O oh comfort, my people, says your God. That's how Isaiah 40 starts. And we were introduced to the herald and the forerunner right there in Isaiah 40. A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Here's the herald. Here's the forerunner. And John the Baptist served this function in the first advent. He's, uh, Elijah will serve this function in the second advent. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed in verse 5. And all flesh will see it together. All flesh. That didn't happen first advent. In first advent, he didn't come to be glorified. He came to be crucified. He came in humility. He came in obscurity. Not so in second advent. Not so at all. All right, fallen man. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. Fallen man. He says, woe is me. And really, I'm going to kind of include a lot of verse 5 in this. Woe is me. Yahweh announces woe a lot. It's against Israel or the rebels or the Gentiles. But here's Isaiah pronouncing woe against himself because of what he's seen, because of this vision. You ever ever find yourself in a place and you know, man, I don't belong here. (laughs) Man, I'm going to be in trouble. If they catch me, I'm going to, I mean, the the best thing will be I'll get thrown out. I probably ought to be in jail. What am I doing here? You know? Don't tell me. It's probably none of my business anyway. But if you've ever found yourself in a place you know you have no business being, but they thought you were somebody you weren't, and they assumed you were with the band, and there was a buffet table set up with a lot of good food, and you, your carnal mind thought, how much can we eat before we skedaddle out of here? Here's Isaiah, thinking, I shouldn't be here. This is the God of holiness. The seraphim are, are singing, holy, holy, holy. And I am ruined. I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Fallen man needs the application of atonement from the acceptable altar. And what's going to happen here is the angel is going to assure him immediately, saying, don't worry about it. Yeah, you're not worthy, but this is going to make you worthy. Don't worry about it. You're not going to be struck down for viewing the things you viewed. In fact, you need to view the things you viewed. Your eyes need to see what your eyes have seen so your lips can testify to what your lips are supposed to testify. The link between eyes and lips is kind of fun. The, um, what you've seen is what we're called to testify to. And so we have the, the uh, language here in this passage. But here's what fallen man needs. Now what's he going to do? Is there anything he can do for himself? Is there anything Isaiah can do? He says, I'm ruined. What am I going to do? There's nothing he can do for himself. But God has provision. It's going to be administered to him like our salvation is administered to us. And so one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. Notice, he will not touch the altar himself personally. But he removes it with tongs and he touched my mouth with it. There's an aspect of our redemption that doesn't touch the angels. 
because He came as the God-man. He came in true humanity to redeem Adamic humanity. He could have come as the angel of the Lord. How many times does the angel of the Lord show up in the Old Testament? God the Son walks this earth many, many times as the angel of the Lord. But the angel of the Lord didn't go to the cross. The angel of the Lord can't go to the cross. But the virgin-born son of Mary went to the cross. The God-man went to the cross. And so we talk about the value of the cross and the redemption story. When, you know, as there's a song, Jacob sung it before, when we sing redemption story, they will fold their wings. Angels can't sing this song. They can sing holy, 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 but they cannot sing redemption story. That's our song. And so uh, there's a component here that cannot be touched, and the angel can't touch it. The angel can't partake of the table we partake of. Altars and tables are limited access depending upon who they're designed for and what the function is. Now, if you want to study this a little bit more, I would encourage you to spend some time in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 13.10, altars are limited in access by the designed right to partake. And we've already seen it this morning. Uzziah had no business going into that altar of incense. No business. The, the, all, even if he was king, all he can do is come to, the, to the, the, uh, the front altar, the brazen altar. He could bring his sin offering, his trespass offering, and kill the animal there. And that's where the priests and Levites will take it from there. They'll take it within the temple. They'll take it within the holy place. They'll sprinkle the blood before the, uh, before the veil and they'll apply the incense to the, uh, to the altar. Uzziah's got no business. He can't get past the outer, the outer court. He has, he has no right to partake. Altars are limited in access by the design right to partake. Every altar, every altar, including the altar here in Isaiah 6, including the altar we partake in, Hebrews 13, 10, Understand, we're body of Christ. We're royal family of God. Wouldn't trade that for the world. Hebrews 13.10 says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. That Old Testament priesthood, the priests and the Levites, the, the tabernacle, and all they had the table of showbread. They had all those things. And, and think about it. And they had those that access, that privilege, that approach to the holiness of God. The Shekinah glory of God was just right there on the other side of that veil. That's how close they could get. The king couldn't get that close. He was struck with leprosy. But the priest could get that close. And the high priest, one day per year, could go inside the veil. But none of that touches what you and I have in Christ. We, write your name in there in verse 10, we, all of us, Bob Bolander, every one of us, in the bride of Christ, the royal family of God, we have an altar from which those guys, Old Testament believers, even the Aaronic priesthood, those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. It's an amazing thing. Think about the rights. I like the verse in John 1.12, as many as believed him, to them he gave the right, the authority, the exousia, to, be called, to become children of God. You remember that verse? John 1, verse 12. It's about the right. He came to His own. Those were His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him to them, He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. 
And when we accept Jesus Christ by faith, we become by right children of God. It's a beautiful thing. We have access to this table here in Hebrews 13. Isaiah is going to be blessed by an altar here in Isaiah chapter 6 that he has a right to partake. The angel administers it to him. And he speaks of both removal and atonement. Boy, I wish I had six weeks to develop this doctrine out. Okay? The removal of sin and the atonement slash covering of sins. These are significant theological studies. This 11 o'clock hour is designed to tease you mercilessly. All right? To tease you. Because all we get in Isaiah 6 is today. Next week it's Isaiah 7. Next week it's a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. All right? This week. Notice. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. And your sin is Kafar, atoned for, covered, forgiven. In the Old Testament, forgiveness came through the covering of sin and the passing over, the uh, reserving of wrath for a future consideration. In the New Testament, forgiveness looks back to the complete work of Christ and is a total removal and has a basis for forgiveness. In the Old Testament, forgiveness is still looking forward. That's why it passes over. Because the sin is simply covered. These are significant theological studies. And thankfully, because they're found in stories, we can teach them to our children. We can teach them in CEF. We can teach them in, uh, in a wide variety of venues. But they teach the deepest theological realities that I hope we can embrace as well. Removal of sin and the atonement slash covering of sins. I love, I love it. I love kafar from the Hebrew, right? To cover, to atone. And I love, I don't know, are they cognates? I'm not even sure. The, um, when, the, when the Muslims call you a kafir, <laughs> when they call you an unbeliever, you know? I, I just, I, I'm struck by that. They are cognates, right? From the Hebrew to the, Arama, to the Arabic, yeah. Well, okay, fine. Call me a kafir all you want. <laughs> I've been atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's look at these. Ezekiel, uh, Exodus chapter 12. <clears throat> what does it mean to be forgiven? What does it mean to be passed over? This is the best. And this is so simple. Exodus 12, they're getting delivered. This is the final plague. This is the night they're rescued out of Egypt. And the Passover lamb... This month, and to me, this is so simple. I mean, if if you got saved this morning, you could learn this. This is great. This month should be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel. Verse 3, Exodus 12. On the 10th of the month, each one is to take a lamb for themselves. On the 10th. Why? Why Nisan 10? On the tenth of the month, each one take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. The household's too small for a lamb. He and his neighbor nearest, you can get together and combine. That's fine. 
according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. An unblemished lamb, one year old. We've got a picture of Christ. He's sinless. He's perfect. He's unblemished. He's young, all right? And he's selected on the 10th, but he's not killed to the 14th. Why is he selected on the 10th? Well, that's the day of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Monday, Nisan 10. But he's, he dies on the 14th, the Passover lamb. He dies on Friday, Nisan 14. And uh, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, and then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts. Notice now, killing the animal is not sufficient. Killing the animal is necessary, but it does not complete the process. It does not, it requires the application of the blood. The shedding of the blood is necessary, but without the application of the blood, the entire picture is not complete. So they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. So it's the application of the blood to the lintel and to the two doorposts. And so this is the key. And when the angel of death passes over, he says in verse 12, I will go throughout the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, Against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you. Not the dead animal. The blood. The blood applied. And if they, if they killed the animal the way, they ate the way, they did all that, but they failed to apply the blood, they're not going to be saved. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, we've got a hymn about this song too, right? There's a hymn about this verse. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. See? Now here's the picture. The the, the death of the animal is sufficient. But the blood, the application of the blood is necessary. That's what is seen. The application of the blood is what's seen and what causes the angel to pass over. All right? The death of Jesus Christ on the cross is sufficient. But it's the application of that blood. When you believe in Jesus Christ, that is when you receive eternal life. That is when the application has been observed. It's been acknowledged by the God who is ultimately satisfied in all this whole process. You understand the difference? And I think this is where... Every time I've discussed limited atonement or unlimited atonement, every time I've discussed things with Calvinists and Arminians, I think this picture helps them in tremendous detail. And they see, wait a minute, there's a difference between when the sheep is slain and when the blood is applied. And they can think in their mind, wait a minute, there's a difference between the death of Christ, who did he die for, and versus the application of that blood, who it is that is elect and born again and saved. See, and it helps to, them to reconcile. Well, wait a minute. Is it possible that that the animal would die and the blood not be applied? All right. So we have the removal of sin and the atonement covering of sins, and these are Old Testament doctrines, New Testament doctrines throughout the Scriptures. 
Keep in mind, though, that every Old Testament believer that ever got saved in the Old Testament got saved believing that Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming. And that that coming Messiah is the one who was going, the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. That the provision for their sin was still future, not yet fulfilled in point of fact. And so their sins are not yet removed, they're simply covered and passed over. John 1.29, though, becomes very startling. Let me uh, back up. Uh, let me grab Hebrews first. Hebrews 10, and then I'll go to John. Because <clears throat> the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. The, 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 the limitations on the shadows is that the shadows aren't reality. Hebrews 10 says, the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. You know, Passover is great, but we're going to do it again next year. We're going to do it again next year. We're going to do it again next year. And year after year after year, there's a reminder of sins. See, if the, if the sacrificial system could make the worshiper perfect, then it'd be once and for all. Done like the work of Christ on the cross, once and for all. As it says in verse 2, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. They would be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus like we are. But they're not, and that's the point. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, which is why they are a picture of a greater sacrifice to come. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, a body you have prepared for me. I've come to do your will. The word became flesh, and he's come to accomplish what the blood of uh, bulls and goats could not do. So backing up now to John 1, this is what makes it so extraordinary. When John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God, he doesn't just cover, he takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 29. He's uh, baptizing, he's got all this ministry going on, and the next day he saw Jesus coming and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what a joy. (laughs) Hallelujah. Jesus Christ has finished work on the cross and the sin, notice sin singular, the entire lost estate, the entire fallen ramifications of Adam, he takes away the sin of the world. And that got uh, Peter's attention. That got John's attention. That got um, they wanted to follow after. Okay. Finally, then Romans three twenty five. We have the theology of this that highlights the fact that when Christ went to the cross, he took care of all sin, even those that happened before the cross, those that happened after the cross, those that happened from between. Adam and, and uh, new heavens, new earth. It's all dealt with in Romans 3.25. Uh, verse 21 says, Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Notice, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And here's the key. Whom God displayed publicly. 
This is the, the center of God's plan for our redemption. God displayed publicly as a propitiation, a satisfaction in his blood through faith. Through faith. See, if you don't apply the blood through faith, then the value is, there's nothing to, for it. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, what did he do? He passed over the sins previously committed. He passed over the sins previously committed. So David and Abraham and all the Old Testament believers that were saved before Jesus was publicly displayed as a propitiation. Well, God was justified in doing that. Because in the outworking of his plan, he knew that their redemption was coming. That's why they went to Abraham's bosom and awaited the rescue to heaven that they did. All right. Significant theological studies. Eyes and lips. This is Isaiah's way to communicate the purpose for our salvation. This is Isaiah's way to communicate the purpose for our salvation. Eyes and lips. Eyes and lips. Why has God saved us? Why did He save Isaiah? Why does He save anybody? I like the purpose clause that's stated in 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. We testify to that which we have seen. We are the witnesses of the glory of God because He has called us into that glory. He has called us into His salvation. Or the way Isaiah puts it, it's eyes and lips. (laughs) I'm a man of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the glory of God. The angel says, no problem. Let's remove your sin and you're good to go. Your lips can, uh, you can flap your lips all you'd like. And please do, testify. Testify to what you've seen. Finally, the last part of Isaiah chapter 6. Give it to you in seven minutes here. Whew, I think it's not a communion Sunday. I'd already been out of time. You know, it's not always a happy message. Faithful messengers are going to be tasked with unpleasant messages. Faithful messengers will be tasked with unpleasant messages. 8 through 13. Who will I send? And he says, send me. And Isaiah and the Lord says, really? You sure about that? (laughs) Okay. Uh, If you want to deliver the Lord's message, then you may have some hostility. Because there's a whole crowd of people that aren't going to want to hear it. The prophets, they were men of whom the world is not worthy. They're going to be mistreated. They're going to be abused. They're going to be sawn in two. Tradition says that's what happened to Isaiah. I heard a voice in the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Your message is to tell Israel that their heart is being hardened and they're not going to understand your message. And they're not going to understand the message of those that come after you. And they're not going to understand, they're going to reject their Christ. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts. 
and return and be healed. Now this bugs a lot of people. Why does God harden their heart? Well, they had hardened their heart to begin with and he just intensifies it. Right? Like Pharaoh had hardened his heart and God intensified it. Here's Israel hardening their heart. God intensifies it. They reject every Old Testament prophet. So they come under God's discipline when his son walks this earth. Israel's hardness was exhibited during the first Advent ministry of Jesus Christ. Won't take the time, but you can read Matthew 13 and see that he's quoting Isaiah chapter 6. Also during the ministry of the Apostle Paul, he's in Rome testifying to uh, Jesus as the Christ. And again, their heart is hardened. They reject it. Israel's hardness was exhibited during the ministry of Jesus Christ and during the ministry of the Apostle Paul. This very passage here we're looking at today is quoted in Matthew 13. It's quoted in Acts 28. I kind of think Matthew also has some parallels in Mark and Luke. But there's some verses for you to look up. So I want to celebrate this glorious stump that we have here. Who's the stump? Or what's the stump? You know, the stump. The sovereignty of God is on display in preserving the holy seed of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 6.13 and how this gets cited in John chapter 12. Isaiah wants to know, how long do I got to preach this bad news? <laughs> in verse 11, I answered and said, Lord, how long? Well, quite a while. Uzziah is only the first king, and you're going to prophesy during the reign of four kings. Until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. In other words, this is the message until Armageddon. This is the message until Israel is finally humbled by the unleashing of hell on earth. The Lord has removed men far away. The forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet, yet, there will be a tenth portion in it. There will be a tithe. There will be a remnant. And it will again be subject to burning like the terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. What a tree. You can chop it down, you can burn it. That stump is still there. That stump is still there. God says, you know what? It might be a chopped down, burned, dead looking stump, but there's a seed and God is going to preserve that seed. And I find it glorious. How many times have people tried to execute the Jews from Moses and then getting with the midwives and butchering all the the Hebrew babies, the boys, and, and Herod butchering the boys, and, and uh, in Esther's day, ordering the execution of Israel, and on into modern times with Hitler and all the attempts to exterminate the Jews. You know, I think if it's, it's just inexplicable. You know, an atheist would have to say, How can this people be indestructible? <laughs> well, there's a God looking after him, that's how. And all the attempts in tribulation, the, the greatest attempt ever is going, to be second, is going to be Armageddon. It's going to be Satan. When he's thrown to the earth, he knows he has a short time and he goes forth with great wrath. His only hope of victory is Satan's only hope of victory in, in the tribulation is to exterminate the Jewish people. And God won't let him do it. All right. The holy seed of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a delight. Father, thank you for your truth. Father, I thank you for the person of your son and how 
despite everything, trying to kill him, trying to keep him from coming. You presented him, Father. He came. And he obeyed and he served and he went to the cross. And he satisfied you for all eternity. I thank you, Father, that not only were you infinitely, eternally satisfied in his sacrifice, but through him then we too become partakers. He is the firstborn of many brethren, Father. And I thank you for the application of his blood that we are very pleased to make by faith in him. By faith in him. And Father, I do thank you for the way that you communicate doctrine in stories and in, in uh, parables and in, in prophecies and in fulfillments of prophecy. And you teach the same message a dozen times throughout the scriptures so we can pound it through our thick skulls, Father, and grasp it and proclaim it to others. Father, uh, it is a delight to be saved by the, the blood of your Son. It is a delight, Father, to be um, brought into, into fellowship with you because of him. And Father, this is uh, what we celebrate. This is what we love. This is what we sing about, Father. Um, Thank you for your Son. In Jesus Christ's name we do pray. Amen.